Chapter Twenty of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Andrew Jackson, seventeen sixty-seven to eighteen forty-five, by Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Doctor von Holst, the most philosophic of historians, when he passes from the period of John Quincy Adams to that of his successor is reluctant to compel to leave the realm of pure history for that of biography and to entitle a chapter the reign of andrew jackson this change of treatment could indeed hardly be helped under adams all was impersonal methodical a government of laws and not of men with an individuality quite as strong as that of jackson as the whole nation learned ere his life ended it had yet been the training of his earlier career to suppress himself and be simply a perfect official his policy aided the vast progress of the nation but won no credit by the process men saw with wonder the westward march of an expanding people but forgot to notice the sedate passionless orderly administration that held the door open and kept the peace for all in studying the time of adams we think of the nation in observing that of jackson we think of jackson himself in him we see the first popular favorite of a nation now well out of leading strings and particularly bent on going alone by so much as he differed from adams by so much the people liked him better his conquests have been those of war always more dazzling than those of peace his temperament was a fire always more attractive than one of marble he was helped by what he had done and by what he had not done even his absence of diplomatic training was almost counted for a virtue because all this training was necessarily european and the demand had ripened for a purely american product it had been quite essential to the self-respect of the new republic at the outset that it should have at its head men who had coped with european statesmen on their own soil and not been discomfited this was the case with each of the early successors of washington and in view of his manifest superiority this advantage was not needed perhaps it was in a different way a sign of self-respect that the new republic should at last turn from this tradition and take boldly from the ranks a strong and ill-trained leader to whom all european precedent and indeed all other precedent counted for nothing in jackson moreover there first appeared upon our national stage the since familiar figure of the self-made man other presidents had sprung from a modest origin but nobody had made an especial point of it nobody had urged washington for office because he had been a surveyor's lad nobody had voted for adams because stately old ladies designated him as that cobbler's son but when jackson came into office the people had just had almost a surfeit of regular training in their chief magistrates there was a certain zest in the thought of a change and the nation certainly had it it must be remembered that jackson was in many ways far above the successive modern imitators who have posed in his image he was narrow ignorant violent unreasonable he punished his enemies and rewarded his friends but he was on the other hand 
and his worst opponents hardly denied it chaste honest truthful and sincere it was not commonly charged upon him that he enriched himself at the public expense or that he deliberately invented falsehoods and he was for a time more bitterly hated than any one who ever occupied his high office we may be very sure that these things would have been charged had it been possible in this respect the contrast was enormous between jackson and his imitators and it explains his prolonged influence he never was found out or exposed before the world because there was nothing to detect or unveil his merits and demerits were as visible as his long narrow firmly set features or as the old military stock that encircled his neck there he was always fully revealed everybody could see him the people might take him or leave him and they never left him moreover there was after the eight years of monroe and the four years of adams an immense popular demand for something piquant or even amusing and this quality they always had from jackson there was nothing in the least melodramatic about him he never posed or attitudinized it would have required too much patience but he was always piquant there was formerly a good deal of discussion as to who wrote the once famous jack downing's letters but we might always say that they wrote themselves nobody was ever less of a humorist than andrew jackson and it was therefore the most essential that he should be the cause of humor in others it was simply inevitable that during his progresses through the country there should be some amusing shadow evoked some yankee parody of the man such as came from two or three quarters under the name of jack downing the various records of monroe's famous tours are as tame as the speeches which these expeditions brought forth and john quincy adams never made any popular demonstrations to chronicle but wherever jackson went there went the other jack the crude first fruits of what is now known through the world as american humor jack downing was mark twain and hosea biglow and artemus ward in one the impetuous president enraged many and delighted many but it is something to know that under him a serious people first found that it knew how to laugh the very extreme the perfectly needless extreme of political foreboding that marked the advent of jackson furnished a background of lurid solemnity for all this light comedy samuel breck records in his diary that he conversed with daniel webster in philadelphia march twenty fourth eighteen twenty seven under the prospects of the government sir said mr webster if general jackson is elected the government of our country will be overthrown the judiciary will be destroyed mr justice johnson will be made chief justice in the room of mr marshall who must soon retire and then in half an hour mr joseph washington and mr justice story will resign a majority will be left with mr johnson and every constitutional decision hitherto made will be reversed as a matter of fact none of these results followed mr justice johnson never became chief justice mr marshall retained that office till his death in eighteen thirty five story and washington also died in office the judiciary was not overthrown nor the government destroyed but the very ecstasy of these fears 
stimulated the excitement of the public mind. No matter how extravagant the supporters of Jackson might be, they could hardly go farther in that direction than did the Websters and the other. But it was not the fault of the Jackson party, if anybody went beyond them in exaggeration. An English traveler, William E. Alexander, going in a stagecoach from Baltimore to Washington in 1831, records the exuberant conversation of six editors, with whom he was shut up for hours. The gentlemen of the press, he says, talked of going the whole hog for one another, of being up to the hub, or the knave, for General Jackson, who was all brimstone but the head, and was aquafortis, and swore if anyone abused him he ought to be set straddle on an iceberg, and shot through with a streak of lightning. Somewhere between the dignified despair of Daniel Webster and the idolatry slang of these gentry, we must look for the actual truth about Jackson's administration. The fears of the statesmen were not wholly groundless, for it is always hard to count in advance upon the tendency of high office to make men more reasonable. The enthusiasm of the editors had a certain foundation. At any rate, it was part of their profession to like stirring times and they now had the promise of them. After four years of Adams, preceded by eight years of Monroe, any party of editors in America, assembled in a stagecoach, would have showered epithets of endearment on the man who gave such promise in the way of lively items. No acute journalist could help seeing that a man had a career before him who was called Old Hickory, by three-quarters of the nation, and who made hurrah for Jackson a cry so potent that it had the force of a popular decree. There was indeed unbounded room for popular enthusiasm in the review of Jackson's early career. Born in such obscurity, that it is doubtful to this day whether he was born in South Carolina, as he himself claimed, or on the North Carolina side of the line, as Mr. Parton thinks, he had a childhood of poverty and ignorance. He was taken prisoner as a mere boy during the Revolution and could never forget that he had been wounded by a British officer, whose boots he had refused to brush. Afterward, in a frontier community, he was successively farmer, shopkeeper, law student, lawyer, district attorney, judge, and congressman, being first representative from Tennessee, and then senator, and all before the age of thirty-one. In Congress, Albert Gallatin describes him as a tall, lank, uncouth-looking personage with long locks of hair hanging over his brows and face, and a queue down his back tied in an eel-skin, his dress singular, his manners and deportment those of a backwoodsman. He remained, however, but a year or two in all at Philadelphia, then the seat of the national government, and afterward became a planter in Tennessee, fought duels, subsued Tecumseh and the Creek Indians, winning finally the great opportunity of his life by being made a major general in the United States Army on May 31, 1814. He now had his old captors, the British, with whom to deal, and entered into the work with a relish. By way of preliminary, he took Pensacola, without any definite authority, from the Spaniards to whom it belonged, and the English whom they harbored. And then, turned without orders, without support, and without supplies to undertake the defense of New Orleans. Important as was this city, and plain as it was that the British threatened it, the national authorities had done nothing to defend it. 
the impression prevailed at Washington that it must already have been taken, but that the President would not let it be known. The Washington Republican of January 17, 1815, said that Mr. Madison will find it convenient and will finally determine to abandon the state of Louisiana we have not a doubt. A New York newspaper of January 30th, quoted in Mr. Andrew Stevenson's eulogy on Jackson, said, It is a general opinion here that the city of New Orleans must fall. Apparently but one thing averted its fall, the energy and will of Andrew Jackson. On his own responsibility he declared martial law, impressed soldiers, seized powder and supplies, built fortifications of cotton bales, if nothing else came to hand. When the news of the Battle of New Orleans came to the seat of government, it was almost too bewildering for belief. The British veterans of the Peninsular War, whose march wherever they had landed had heretofore seemed a holiday parade, were repulsed in a manner so astounding that their loss was more than two thousand, while that of the Americans was but thirteen. By a single stroke, the national self-respect was restored, and Henry Clay, at Paris, said, Now I can go to England without mortification. All these things must be taken into account in estimating what Dr. von Holst calls the reign of Andrew Jackson. After this climax of military success, he was for a time employed on frontier service, again went to Florida to fight Englishmen and Spaniards, practically conquering that region in a few months, but this time with an overwhelming force. Already his impetuosity had proved to have troublesome side to it. He had violated neutral territory. He hung two Indians without justification, and had put to death, with no authority, two Englishmen, Amberster and Arbuthnot. These irregularities did not harm him in the judgment of his admirers. They seemed in the line of his character, and helped more than they hurt him. In the winter of 1823-24, he was again chosen a senator from Tennessee. Thenceforth, he was in the field as a candidate for the presidency, with two things to aid him, his own immense popularity and a friend. The friend was one William B. Lewis, a man in whom all the skillful arts of the modern wire-puller seemed to be born full-grown. There was at that time, 1824, no real division in parties. The Federalists have been effectually put down, and every man who aspired to office claimed to be Democratic-Republican. Nominations were irregularly made, sometimes by a congressional caucus, sometimes by state legislatures. Tennessee, and afterward Pennsylvania, nominated Jackson. When it came to the vote, he proved to be, by all odds, the popular candidate. Professor W. G. Sumner, counting up the votes of the people, finds 155,800 votes for Jackson, 105,300 for Adams, 44,200 for Crawford, 46,000 for Clay. Even with this strong popular vote before it, the House of Representatives, balloting by states, elected on the first trial John Quincy Adams. Seldom in our history has the cup of power come so near to the lips of a candidate and been dashed away again. Yet nothing is surer in a republic 
than a certain swing of the pendulum afterward in favor of any candidate to whom a special injustice has been done and in the case of a popular favorite like jackson this might have been foreseen to be irresistible his election four years later was almost a foregone conclusion but as if to make it wholly sure there came up the rumor of a corrupt bargain between the successful candidate and mr clay whose forces had indeed joined with those of mr adams to make a majority for general jackson there could be nothing more fortunate the mere ghost of a corrupt bargain is worth many thousand votes to the lucky man who conjures up the ghost when it came the turn of the adams party to be defeated in eighteen twenty eight they attributed this result partly to the depravity of the human heart partly to the tricks of jackson and partly to the unfortunate temperament of mr adams the day after a candidate is beaten everybody knows why it was and says it was just what any one might have foreseen ezekiel webster writing from new hampshire laid the result chiefly on the candidate whom everybody disliked and who would persist in leaving his bitter opponents in office the people he said always supported his cause from a cold sense of duty and not from any liking of the man we soon satisfy ourselves he added that we have discharged our duty to the cause of any man when we do not entertain for him one personal kind of feeling nor cannot unless we disembowel ourselves like a trust turkey of all that is human within us there is indeed no doubt that mr adams helped on his own defeat both by his defects and by what would now be considered his virtues the trouble however lay further back ezekiel webster thought that if there had been at the head of affairs a man of popular character like mr clay or any man whom were not compelled by our nature's instinct and fixed fate to dislike the result would have been different but we can now see that all this would really have made no difference at all had mr adams been personally the most attractive of men instead of being a conscientious iceberg the same result would have followed the people would have felt that jackson's turn had come and the demand for the old ticket would have been irresistible accordingly the next election that of eighteen twenty eight was easily settled jackson had one hundred and seventy eight electoral votes adams but eighty three more than two to one adams had not an electoral vote south of the potomac or west of the alleghanies though daniel webster writing to jeremiah mason had predicted that he would carry six western and southern states in georgia no adams ticket was even nominated he being there unpopular for one of his best acts the protection of the cherokees on the other hand but one jackson elector was chosen from new england and he by less than two hundred majority on the day of his inauguration the president was received in washington with an ardor that might have turned a more modest head on the day when the new administration began march fourth eighteen twenty nine daniel webster wrote to his sister-in-law with whom he had left his children that winter to-day we have the inauguration a monstrous crowd of people is in the city i never saw anything like it before persons have come five hundred miles to see general jackson and they really seem to think that the country is rescued from some frightful danger it is difficult now to see what this peril was supposed to be but we know that the charges of monarchical tendency made against john adams 
had been renewed against his son a renewal that seems absurd in the case of a man so scrupulously republican that he would not use a seal ring and so unambitious that he always sighed after the quieter walks of literature equally absurd was the charge of extravagance against a man who kept the white house in better order than his predecessors on less than half the appropriation an economy wholly counterbalanced in some minds by the fact that he had put in a billiard table but however all this may have been the fact is certain that no president had yet entered the white house amid such choruses of delight nor did it happen again until jackson's pupil van buren yielded amid equal popular enthusiasm to another military hero harrison for the social life of washington the president had one advantage which was altogether unexpected and seemed difficult of explanation by anything in his earlier career he had at his command the most courteous and agreeable manners even before the election of adams daniel webster had written to his brother general jackson's manners are better than those of any of the candidates he is grave mild and reserved my wife is for him decidedly and long after when the president was to pass in review before those who were perhaps his most implacable opponents the ladies of boston we have the testimony of the late hosiah quincy in his figures from the past that the personal bearing of this obnoxious official was most unwillingly approved mr quincy was detailed by governor lincoln on whose military staff he was to attend president jackson everywhere when visiting boston in eighteen thirty three and this narrator testifies that with every prejudice against jackson he found himself essentially a knightly personage prejudiced narrow mistaken on many points it might be but vigorously a gentleman in his high sense of honor and in the natural straightforward courtesies which are easily distinguished from the veneer of policy sitting erect on his horse a thin stiff type of military strength he carried with him in the streets a bearing of such dignity that staid old bostonians who had refused even to look upon him from their windows would finally be coaxed into taking one peep and would then hurriedly bring forward their little daughters to wave their handkerchiefs he wrought mr quincy declares a mysterious charm upon old and young showed although in feeble health a great consideration for others and was in private a really agreeable companion it appears from these reminiscences that the president was not merely the cause of wit in others but now and then appreciated it himself and that he used to listen with delight to the reading of the jack downing letters laughing heartily sometimes and declaring the vice president must have written that depend on it jack downing is only van buren in masquerade it is a curious fact that the satirist is already the better remembered of the two although van buren was in his day so powerful as to preside over the official patronage of the nation and to be called the little magician the two acts with which the administration of president jackson will be longest identified are his dealings with south carolina in respect to nullification and his long warfare with the united states bank the first brought the new england states back to him and the second took them away again he perhaps won rather more applause than he merited by the one act 
and more condemnation than was just for the other let us first consider the matter of nullification when various southern states georgia at first not south carolina taking the lead had quarrelled with the tariff of eighteen twenty eight and openly threatened to set it aside they evidently hoped for the cooperation of the president or at least for the silent acquiescence he had shown when georgia had been almost equally turbulent on the indian question and he would not interfere as his predecessor has done to protect the treaty rights of the indian tribes the whole south was therefore startled when he gave at a banquet on jefferson's birthday april thirteenth eighteen thirty a toast that now seems commonplace the federal union it must be preserved but this was not all when the time came he took vigorous if not altogether consistent steps to preserve it when in november eighteen thirty two south carolina for the first time officially voted that certain tariff acts were null and void in that state the gauntlet of defiance was fairly thrown down and jackson took it up he sent general scott to take command at charleston with troops nearby and two gunboats at hand he issued a dignified proclamation written by livingston december tenth eighteen thirty two which pronounced the act of south carolina contradictory to the constitution unauthorized by it and destructive of its aims so far so good but unfortunately the president had the week before december fourth eighteen thirty two sent a tariff message to congress of which john quincy adams wrote it goes far to dissolve the union into its original elements and is in substance a complete surrender into the hands of the nullifiers of south carolina then came mr clay's compromise tariff of eighteen thirty three following in part the line indicated by this message and achieving as mr calhoun said a victory for nullification leaving the matter a drawn game at any rate the action of jackson thus accompanied settled nothing it was like valiantly ordering a burglar out of your house with a pistol and adding a suggestion that he will find a portion of the family silver on the hall table ready packed for his use as he goes out nevertheless the burglar was gone for the moment and the president had the credit of it he had already been re-elected by an overwhelming majority in november of eighteen thirty two receiving two hundred and nineteen electoral votes and clay forty nine while floyd had the eleven votes of south carolina which still chose electors by its legislature a practice now abandoned and wirt the seven of vermont van buren was chosen vice-president being nominated in place of calhoun by the democratic national convention which now for the first time came into operation the president was now at his high-water mark of popularity always a dangerous time for a public man his vehement nature accepted his re-election as a proof that he was right in everything and he grew more self-confident than ever more imperiously than ever he ordered about friends and opponents and his friends repaid it by guiding his affairs unconsciously to himself meantime he was encountering another enemy of greater power because more silent than southern nullification and he was drifting on to his final contest with the united states bank sidney smith says that every englishman feels himself able without instruction to drive a pony chase conduct a small farm and edit a newspaper the average american assumes in addition to all this 
that he is competent to manage a bank. President Jackson claimed for himself, in this respect, no more than his fellows. The difference was in strength of will and in possession of power. A man so ignorant that a member of his own family, according to Mr. Trist, used to say that the general did not believe the world was round, might easily convince himself that he knew all about banking. As he had, besides all of this, very keen observation and great intuitive judgment of character, he was probably right in his point of attack. There is little doubt that the Bank of the United States, under Nicholas Biddle, concentrated itself in enormous power, and it spent in four years, by confession of its directors, $58,000 in what they called self-defense against politicians. When, on July 10, 1832, General Jackson, in a message supposed to have been inspired by Amos Kendall, vetoed the bill renewing the charter of the bank, he performed an act of courage, taking counsel with his instincts. But when in the year following he performed the act known as the removal of the deposits, or in other words caused the public money to be no longer deposited in the National Bank and its twenty-five branches, but in a variety of state banks instead, then he took counsel of his ignorance. The consequence, immediate or remote, was an immense galvanizing into existence of state banks, and ultimately a vast increase of paper money. The sub-treasury system had not then been thought of. There was no proper place of deposit for the public funds. Their possession was a direct stimulus to speculation, and the President's cure was worse than the disease. All the vast inflation of 1835 and 1836 and the business collapse of 1837 were due to the fact that not merely that Andrew Jackson brought all his violent and persistent will to bear against the United States Bank, but that when he got the power into his own hands, he did not know what to do with it. Not one of his biographers, hardly even a bigoted admirer, so far as I know, now claims that his course in this respect was anything but a mistake. No monster bank, says Professor W. G. Sumner, under the most malicious management could have produced as much havoc, either political or financial, as this system produced while it lasted. If the bank was, as is now generally admitted, a dangerous institution, Jackson was in the right to resist it. He was right even in disregarding the enormous flood of petitions that poured into its support. But to oppose a dangerous bank, does not necessarily make one an expert in banking. The utmost that can be said in favor of his action is that the calamitous results showed the great power of the institution he overthrew, and that if he had let it alone, the final result may have been as bad. Two new states were added to the Union in President Jackson's time, Arkansas, 1836, and Michigan, 1837. The population of the United States in 1830 had risen to nearly 13 millions, 12,866,020. There was no foreign war during his administration, although one with France was barely averted, and no domestic contest except with the Florida Indians, a contest in which these combatants held their ground so well under the half-breed chief Osceola that he himself was only captured by the violation of a flag of truce, and that even to this day, as the Indian commissioners tell us, 
some three hundred of the tribe remain in florida the war being equally carried on against fugitive slaves called maroons who had intermarried with the indians did something to prepare the public mind for a new agitation which was to remould american political parties and to modify the constitution of the nation it must be remembered that the very air began to be filled in jackson's time with rumors of insurrections and uprisings in different parts of the world the french revolution of the three days had roused all the american people to sympathy and called forth a special enthusiasm in such cities as baltimore richmond and charleston the polish revolution had excited universal interest and john randolph had said the greeks are at your doors all these things were being discussed at every dinner-table and the debates in virginia as to the necessity of restricting the growing intelligence of the slaves had added to the agitation in the session of eighteen twenty nine through thirty a bill had passed the virginia assembly by one majority and had failed in the senate prohibiting slaves being taught to read or write and the next year it had passed almost unanimously there had been about the same time alarms of insurrection in north carolina so that a party of slaves were attacked and killed by the inhabitants of newburn alarms in maryland so that fifty blacks had been imprisoned on the eastern shore alarms in louisiana so that reinforcements of troops had been ordered to baton rouge and a traveller had written even from richmond virginia on february twelfth that there were constant fears of insurrections and special patrols then came the insurrection of nat turner in virginia an uprising described minutely by myself elsewhere the remarkable inflammatory pamphlet called walker's appeal by a northern colored man a piece of writing surpassed in lurid power by nothing in the literature of the french revolution and more potent than either or both of these the appearance of the first number of the liberator in boston when garrison wrote i am in earnest i will not equivocate i will not excuse i will not retreat a single inch and i will be heard andrew jackson for once met a will firmer than his own because more steadfast and moved by a loftier purpose thenceforth for nearly half a century the history of the nation was the history of the great anti-slavery contest End of chapter twenty